You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech, Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Keith Hingen, assistant professor of biology. Uh, he runs a neuroscience laboratory at Washington University, investigating the role of sleep and wake in uh, chaperoning uh, interactions in the body. I'll put it uh, basically, and he'll give more character to it. So, uh, Keith, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm I'm good. It's uh, nice to meet you, and thanks for talking to me on the on the fourth. Happy Happy Fourth of July. Yeah. Thank you. you too. Well, so tell me about your uh, research. Uh, what's what's a better way to restate it? I just kind of you know, read a quick note, but uh, you know, let listeners know what is it that you're working on. So my my path has been kind of wandering to get here. So the stuff that I've done recently is a little bit different than the stuff that I'm working on at the moment. But in general, I'd say that the focus of my lab is to understand um, stability in neural processing, and so. The the easiest way to kind of understand that is to say that your your name is Richard, right? Yes. Okay, so you wake up this morning, you say, okay, I'm Richard, you know, I do what I do. And you wake up tomorrow and you're still Richard and you wake up in six months and you're still Richard. You wake up in 20 years, you'll still be Richard. And you're never going to wake up in the morning and think I'm Susan from Topeka, right? That's just not going to happen. I hope not. Right. If you did, you'd have a serious, serious problem and you'd probably have to go see a neurologist. And I understand that that sounds kind of like a silly, a silly idea or sort of silly hypothesis to put forth that, that this could even happen. But the brain is not crystallized and locked in. So your the the proteins um, that make up your sort of synaptic connections that your brain turn over on the timescale of seconds to hours, maybe days in some cases. And all of those synapses are plastic and respond to the experiences that you have throughout the day. So there's constant change within this network, and yet the final output of these things is incredibly robust and incredibly stable, um, despite the fact that you might learn things, you might um, learn more about yourself, Richard, you might move, you might change context, you might become stressed, you might become ill, and yet throughout all of that, you will still maintain robustness in a lot of these incredibly complex computational processes that your brain is conducting day in and day out, and they never flicker. I could wake you up in the middle of the night you know, and say, what's your name? And say, I'm Richard, and like you'll be able to identify you know, a pen and keys, and you won't mistake those for a duck and an avocado. Um, and that's, 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 yeah, the that's weird thing. Uh, 
Yeah, go for it. Just a couple quick comments here. You know, I've thought about this. It's weird. I, I felt like I'm different people throughout my life. You know, I'm in my 40s now. I felt like I've been different people, not totally different, but, you know, you act very differently when you're a teenager, for instance. And then I also thought about the fact that, you know, people only remember probably one-tenth of one percent of all the days they've ever lived, maybe even less, yet they are who they are. So those two things are also, I guess, important to thinking about this, at least to me. Right. So like that, that trajectory of you from teenager to where you are now involves a huge amount of modification and growth and change um, and manipulation of these networks. And the fact that you have a continuous narrative through there and you have maintained um, identity, you've maintained your ability to identify objects, to you know, even just control your arms um, as you've grown is, is a testament to sort of the to what we take for granted every day, that, that your brain is computationally stable and it is robust to these types of changes and sort of the passage of time across decades in, in, you know, in the instance of a human. Um, and, and we don't know how to do that. I mean, we can't make artificial neural networks do that. You know, if they, if they learn without uh, breaks being put on them, they'll get to what's called uh, sort of catastrophic, catastrophic forgetting. They just they fall apart. Um, and we don't. And so the, the, you know, my lab basically looks at this um, and tries to extend what we know at the level of so cellular neuroscience and synaptic neuroscience, and then apply these principles to higher order network dynamics in uh, sort of larger dimensional space and across um, larger populations of neurons in freely behaving animals. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it makes sense, but are you just trying to understand the mechanism of how the brain does this, or are you trying to recreate this in the artificial intelligence? Like, what's the goal? So, I mean, obviously an application of this would be that we could apply it to artificial intelligence, but that's kind of not my direct interest. So I have collaborators who are very, very interested in these things, um, working with a, a wonderful young uh, scientist at the intersection of machine learning and neuroscience named Eva Dyer. She's uh, out of Conrad Cording's lab, but now she's got her own lab at Georgia Tech. And so she's taking our data and trying to sort of you know, extend it in the direction of, you know, in silico. Um, but I guess the core questions that I want to know is what does it even mean to be stable? Because clearly you don't have a neuron that's responsible for, you know, your self-identity. You don't have a neuron that identifies uh, a pencil. Um, and so one of the questions that we have is what aspect of neural dynamics is stable in representing some form of knowledge or behavior? Um, and how do individual neurons contribute to that through time? So this will have severe implications for uh, how we understand diseases I think that diseases right now are often approached in an overly reductionist, um, uh, uh, overly reductionist strategy, where we say, you know, Alzheimer's is this protein, or Alzheimer's is this is this aggregate of of junk in one cell, right? And we just expand that, we can explain the disease. But I think in reality, Alzheimer's is the degradation of system dynamics, and those proteins might play a role in that degradation. But nobody's looking at these larger system dynamics. We don't know what it means for the system to degrade. Um, unless we're zoomed into the cellular level. Uh, so we're trying to sort of take this mid-range view, this sort of mesoscale uh, view of, of neuronal function and apply that to normal behavior, learning, and disease. Yeah, if you look at Alzheimer's or dementia, you know, the person's who they are, then they start being forgetful and all that, and they slowly, uh, I guess, degrade. Then they're not who they are, and then there's, I don't know, there's a tipping point, or they get to a point where they're no longer anyone, and I guess their identity is lost. Unfortunately, and how does that happen? Why does that happen? Is it, I guess there's emergent properties of the brain, and when enough of the system is compromised, uh, it, it's no longer what it is. It changes, you know, the regime changes somehow. 
Right. So it seems, it seems like you have a pretty good understanding of some of these these ideas, right? So you could have you could have this happen in a couple different ways. It could just be that um, some set of synapses is responsible for your memory of an event, and if those synapses die or you know degrade or if those cells die, you lose that event. Or it could be that you have some larger emergent dynamic that multiple cells can support, and individual cells can drop out and it, it's unaffected, and you have to get to some critical tipping point. Um, I think that's more likely. So if we look at um, people with ALS, for example, phrenic motor neurons that innervate the diaphragm uh, die. And the motor control of the diaphragm doesn't fall apart until 70% of those neurons have died. So it basically suggests that there's plasticity in the sort of emergent coordination of the remaining cells until you cross some line that they then can't pick up, uh, pick up for anymore. So uh, processing information is probably a similar follows a similar set of rules, but the, but the problem is we don't know what those rules are. Sorry if this is getting vague. I'm assuming you, you chop certain pieces of this out later. No, it makes, it makes I mean, we, we'll go high level, low level, high level, low level, no problem. Okay. I mean, so, you know, from what I see, and again, I'm not a doctor or scientist, but the body has plasticity, but it also has redundancy. So those yeah. two things combined make these resilient systems that don't just fall apart if one cell dies in it, you know, or if a few cells die. So and that seems to be happening everywhere in the body. There's a lot of redundancy. And you know, even if you look at, let's say, the gut microbiome, it's not just one strain of bacteria that makes, you know, some metabolites. There's multiple for what I've learned. And the same thing with the brain, you know, it's not one neuron. Uh, same thing with the, the kidneys. It's just not one glomerulus, you know. So I think all these things play in. And to look at it in a reductionist way is probably stupid. Well, I mean, I, I think there's a place for 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 sort of um, extreme reductionism, but the the these principles of of redundancy and robustness, I mean, they're they're obvious, right? I mean, we can just say, due to the fact that you are still Richard today, there's clearly robustness in the system, and it probably comes from redundancy. But what actually promotes that, and what what is the thing that is redundant, is unclear, and we don't know that. And I would I would argue, I guess, and this is a little bit hyperbolic, I guess I'd be kind of embarrassed to, let's put it this way, I wouldn't say this at a scientific conference, but in just terms of like a normal conversation, the I could put forth the argument that one of the most important things the central nervous system can do is produce reliable behavior. And I would say that's more important than learning, because learning doesn't matter if it's not reliable. If you're a squirrel and you hide your acorn somewhere, and you remember that for five minutes, and then it dissipates due to the impact of new information, then that memory process was useless to you, right? And evolution can only select for behavior. So whatever the mechanisms are that underlie the emergent dynamics that produce behavior, those are effectively what are selected for. Um, and so, right. yeah, you know, given that, given that an mean, animal I mean, needs to remember things on, on certain sort of ethologically relevant timescales, the mechanisms that support stable dynamics on those timescales are going to be selected for over arrangements that don't do that. Yeah, it just seems like, um, I don't know, you can picture it maybe as a, the mind as a cloud, a cloud you know, like, in, let's say I'm not even diseased. You know, I learn a new factor. I learn a new skill. Again, I'm still the same person. Um, you know, uh, this week I've forgotten something I've learned 10 years ago. You know, I, went, I took a class and something, and now I've totally forgotten it. You know, I'm still the same person. So it just seems like a, the mind is not a solid object. Even just thinking about it, it's this this amorphous thing that grows and shrinks and changes, but it still is what it is. Right. And I guess but it's it, it, the it, nature it, of what is it. Kind of by definition, though, it's it's disruption and that stability that is effectively, that that is disease, right? So all diseases are 
a disruption that can't be accounted for. So we have a lot of homeostatic mechanisms in place that can counterbalance the perturbations introduced by experience, for example. So this has um, been a, a, a beautiful line of research that stemmed from labs like Gina Terrigiano and Eve Martyr, uh, Gray Davis and Rick Huguenier. So people sort of built up this line of logic to say that learning induces uh, changes in individual synapses, but that's a positive feedback mechanism. So if you have a recurrently connected network and you learn things, you change the network, that will feed back on itself to sort of promote further changes in the same direction. So imagine holding a microphone too close to a speaker. You get that, that kind of um, runaway gain problem where it starts to screech. So if we know that learning causes these changes, then we can extrapolate that there must be some sort of compensatory sort of negative feedback to keep that in check. And people have studied this at the level of individual cells and sketched out mechanisms like synaptic scaling, which counterbalances the impact of learning. And we assume that that's part of what allows you to continue to be you, even though, like you just said, you might learn new information or forget other information, but you have some stable network function at the end of the day. Um, but what that stable network function is, is completely unknown as far as I'm concerned. So what would tell you that you've reached a level of understanding you haven't been at yet? How do you, how do you approach this? You know, it's so, very generic. So what, like, what are you doing to figure this out? Okay, right. So that's a really good question. Sorry, it's taken us 20 minutes to even get here. Um, my lab has developed methods to uh, record from unprecedentedly large numbers of individual neurons in freely behaving animals continuously for, uh, at this point, we're up to 10 months um, without ever stopping. So we can effectively assay every single spike that a neuron generates for 10 months and map that back onto naturally occurring behavior. So animals have sort of a, a, a distribution of naturally occurring behaviors. Yeah, right. But now we can do this across, um, right now we have a mouse with 512 uh, sort of micro recording electrodes throughout its brain. We're recording from 12 different brain regions. We have on the order of a thousand single neurons in this animal. So we can look at the interaction of these 12 brain regions, these thousand neurons across 50,000 iterations of grooming or certain types of sleep-wake transitions or, um, you know, drinking or seeking food or socializing with, uh, with litter mates. And so we can try to derive the sort of long-term underlying rules that govern the, the neural dynamics involved in natural behavior. So that's our approach. And then we can do the same thing. We also have, for example, a collaboration with, uh, there's a really, really great guy here at WashU named Dave Holtzman. He's a um, sort of famous in the Alzheimer's community, Alzheimer's research community. So we have a, a mouse that has human tau and human APOE4. So these are basically predict Alzheimer's. So we have a mouse that's developing Alzheimer's, but we were able to start recording from hundreds of neurons in this mouse months before it developed any symptoms. So we can actually watch the neural dynamics degrade as the animal um, sort of approaches the onset of the disease and then as it progresses into sort of the end stage of the disease. And nobody's ever been able to look at the disease through that lens before. It's amazing. So what have you seen in the observations of this mouse that's getting Alzheimer's and then the other mouse that uh, you've been observing for 10 months? So one of the cool, um, I guess, sort of concrete findings that we've had recently has to do with this. Man, man we might end up talking for a few hours on this. I don't know. I have no idea how you're going to edit it. But um, we found that the, the cortex in, uh, in a healthy mouse seems to self-organize around a computational regime that theoretical, theoretical physicists call criticality. Um, are you familiar with that at all? Not really, no. Okay, so the idea here is that if you have a network of neurons, um, imagine that there's just a little bit too much inhibition in that network, right? So it's kind of, it's heavily damped. 
if you inject information into it, it's, it might kind of reverberate locally, but then it's going to die out, right? It's not going to really make changes across the entire network. You're not going to do a very good job encoding information on large scales of space or time. Things are just going to kind of fade. And then on the, on the other end of the spectrum, if you have an, a network that's got sort of it's primed for too much excitation, if you make a little local change in that thing, you inject a couple spikes, it's going to blow up. It's going to run away with that gain, and the whole network will saturate. And that's what we would effectively call an epileptiform network. You're going to have uh, sort of uncontrolled spreading of activity. So exactly at the transition between those two regimes, the inhibitory and the excitatory regime, is a situation in which you have effectively a gain of one across that entire network. So you, you enable the network to be what's called scale-free, so that there is no spatial or temporal scale governing information in that network. You have maximum entropy, you have maximum dynamic range. Uh, so dynamic range, just for any listeners who aren't familiar with that, is your ability to, the, 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 it's the intensity of a stimulus that you're sensitive to. So consider being in a, uh, in a dark theater and your eyes adjust, and you can detect only a few photons. But then if you walk out into bright sunlight, you can detect, you know, millions-fold increase in the number of photons hitting your eye, and you're still capable of processing information across that, that entire spectrum. So you maximize that dynamic range in a critical regime. You maximize the amount of information you can transmit and store, um, and you, you become skill-free. You can, you can transmit information across, you know, theoretically, infinite space and time. Like, you can, I can ruminate on... On, 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 you know, prior thoughts for hours or, or, or days, weeks, months, right? I mean, I can, there isn't sort of a time limit on my ability to maintain information. Well, this kind of sounds like, you know, I'm hearing maybe a short and long-term memory, maybe um, the part of our brain that processes experiences by default, you put them into this more damp, or maybe the network changes where it's more damp and the, the memory is not going to survive long unless it's determined to be useful or threatening or whatever it is, and then maybe the definitions of the network could change, where now it moves throughout the network and it's stored more permanently. Maybe this is one of the mechanisms by which it happens. Yeah, I mean, so, so the, the, I mean, that's, a, that's, a re- that's a really interesting idea. And so, you know, we have electrodes in all of these different regions of the brain, and so we're beginning to look at this, I guess, this like higher order computational organization of these networks and how that's influenced by behavior and by learning and by disease processes. Um, and so I, I, I can say, you know, kind of without, without going too far, I can say that different brain regions seem to obey different rules. But a good way to think about this is um, consider like the RAM in your computer. Uh, if it's not formatted correctly, you might be able to get your computer to do, to do some things, but it's not going to work well. It's not going to fly. You're not going to be able to deal with sort of large programs and, you know, video and graphics. But if you format your RAM properly, you're going to maximize your ability to do any number of calculations and computations on that. And so the, it's this sort of precise formatting that, um, that we're examining. And the nice thing about it is that it's an a priori prediction. We're not just kind of going in and observing and then describing and saying, well, this is what the thing looks like. We can go into it looking at the work of, I mean, I guess I have to kind of shout out the right people here. So like Dietmar Plenz and John Beggs, there's a, um, this guy, Per Bach, um, have all theorize that the brain should look like this, and there's some evidence that it does, but now we can actually watch that formatting drift and change and shift um, as a function of sleep and wake, for example, or it can degrade as a function of sort of the onset of Alzheimer's. So again, what have you noticed in the, uh, the healthy mouse that you've been observing for 10 months? What kind of experiences do what in its brain? Are there many varied responses 
two experiences, um, you yeah, know, habitual ones that it's been conditioned to many times because the this is the way it processes them change over time. I mean, I would think you'd observe a lot of different trends. We yeah right. So you're 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 exactly on to to the point here. I mean, we were generating um, when we go at capacity, we generate around 300 terabytes of data a month. Um, so there, there's a huge amount to dig into in any one of these recordings. But I can say preliminarily that the the variance in the sort of neural dynamics underlying a constraint or a, a, a simple behavior like drinking, the variance underlying that type of stereotype behavior is is huge. And so I think a lot of it, what we're starting to realize is that a lot of the neural code for something simple like vision or a simple behavior like grooming depends a lot on context. It depends on, it has hysteresis. It depends on the state of the animal, what it's been doing recently, um, and what it might be planning to do in the future. So it's not just a simple code. Um, I know that you guys spoke with uh, Carlos Ponce recently, um, and he yeah. and I love to yeah. sort of argue about this. Like, I don't believe that neurons simply encode information. I don't think that neurons in V1 just encode that stimulus and it's end of the story. I think that the that it, it, it depends on what the system has been doing and that what the neuron is, what information is flowing through that neuron is uh, is time dependent and it kind of evolves through state space um, and that it's not just a, a fixed contribution of information. And well, what have you data... noticed, for instance, about the drinking behavior, you know, drinking water? If, uh, what does it look like you know, over time as the mouse drinks, what if it, you know, when it wakes up and it does take its first drink, is that different from when it's, you know, in the middle of the day and it's drinking or I don't know if it hasn't drank in the, uh, you know, for some reason in a day, is that different? What, how does so, it modulates it? In your yeah. So, okay. So now, now we're starting to like butt up against that line where I was mentioning to you at the, at the beginning, like, I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, I guess, ruin my own, um, uh, let's see. We're, we're we're edging into into data that I don't I don't want to discuss until we until we have it more complete and published. So, um, well, you could say, but you are noticing a difference, right? And are you able to characterize, you know, uh, what the pattern is likely to look like depending on, you know, like, like I said, drinking water. You know, if it if it wakes up and takes its first drink, is it a is it a um, a definite pattern that you say, oh, yep, that's the waking drinking pattern. Versus the you know right before bed pattern drinking water, I would so, say you're noticing differences and you can they're reliable is what I'm saying. I'll I'll say this much when when we examine naturally occurring behaviors over sort of longer time scales, the 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 underlying dynamics are extremely variable. So the the traditional approach to studying behavior is called a two AFC, this two alternative force choice task. So that's when you sort of put an animal into a um, sort of experimental uh, apparatus. So a lot of times these animals are head fixed or they sort of poke their head into a little port and you give the animal an option to look to the left or look to the right or somehow indicate a binary decision, right? And theoretically, this could easily be encoded just by a single neuron. It doesn't actually require a network. Um, and usually you train the animal 30,000 times to complete this task. So you train a mouse to discriminate between two different visual stimuli and it says left or right. And that's it. And when you do that and you kind of force the animal to go into this like overtrained, oversimplified task, you begin to be able to extract extremely predictive neural dynamics underlying that. So that's when you start to say, oh, this cell encodes left or this cell encodes right. And I, I will say as much as those rules seem to fall apart in extemporaneous behavior in natural conditions. What does that mean, extemporaneous behavior? Um, sort of just, just 
free behavior, so not 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 something that's forced, um, um, sort of improvisational oh, behavior, okay. like as as an animal's wandering around its cage. So the the context of what the animal's doing has a lot of determination over the neural dynamics. So it's not it's not just that there are these six neurons encoding, you know, action A. Um, so the involvement of neurons in actions changes depending on time and context. Right, and so that sets up a really tough problem for disease, right? Because you can't simply say, oh, you've lost your, your pencil neuron, right? Um, the network encoding pencil can drift. I mean, think about people who have serious strokes or head injuries. I mean, people can lose like a huge piece of their cortex and lose control over an entire piece of their body. And even though that tissue is now gone, right, sort of surgically removed, they might regain that. You know, there's plasticity that somehow recovers that dynamic but puts it into a different different piece of the brain, like a different physical manifestation. So there's a separation between function and and um, and, and tangible components. So, so let's say you're looking again just at drinking water, you know, the right. first drink of the day. Yep. Um, how many different first drink of the day patterns have you observed when it's not this forced behavior, it's just the natural behavior? I mean, I, isn't it? How varied are they? I mean, I would think you'd be able to look at that, you know, over 10 months, like the first drink of the morning uh, pattern. And it would, it would, I, I would think it would, it wouldn't be different every single time, or at least only a small percentage different. Was it radically so, different? so, yeah, so I'll, I'll, we're, we're working on that. We're working on that because the, I should also point out that the lab here, the lab has been open for less than two years. So the, the, process of simply getting this machine up and running and built and writing all the code and building the servers and teaching people to do the surgeries and build these electrodes and then actually to collect the data and then build AI-based tools to examine hundreds and hundreds of terabytes of data has taken obviously a huge amount of time and effort. And so now we have these data sets and we're beginning to look at them. But I, you know, water drinking as a, as a prime example is a constrained stereotype, naturally occurring behavior um, that has obvious relevance to the animal's survival. Um, so it's something we are looking at, but I don't have concrete results that I can can share with you over the phone right now. That's okay. That may be something to look okay. at, you know. That's, yeah. So, that would be, uh, you know, what, 300 uh, morning water drinking episodes. So, I was, again, I'm just speculating, but I would guess if you took that and you looked at that one behavior 300 times, you'd probably see, I would, I would thank you to, I have to see like only four ways it can express itself in the neurons or 10 ways or, you know, not infinite. So that's, that's just my guess, my speculation. No, 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 Richard. I mean, that's, I like, you, that's, that's, you, you, you're clearly, um, you know, attracted to the right question here. Like that's exactly what we are interested in. And it's exactly what we're trying to do because nobody else has been able to answer that question because these methods haven't existed in the past. And so given that we know there is a lot of variance in neuronal responses to the same stimulus, I mean, we're talking simple things. Like if you, if you put an animal in front of a screen and you play the same thing to it a bunch of times, it's not predictable. Like you can average it out and say, okay, these neurons tend to be more active when we show the animal that frame versus that frame, but it's not 100%. It's not that this neuron just sort of one-to-one -one encoding of a stimulus. That's on a short time scale. And so then the bigger question is, what happens when you look at 5,000 neurons and how those things interact to control a behavior that is then repeated hundreds and hundreds of times? That's the essence of behavior. That's the essence of robust cognition. And I would suggest that we don't know how it is robust and what it means to be robust, right? Like how much variance is in there? How is that variance able to still produce an invariant behavior? Yeah, that's true. It's a huge question. 
Um, and yeah, and, 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 and it's, it's the funny degradation nature of the brain is uh, it's slapping you and saying, oh, not so simple, not so simple. It's, right, and it, it's, it's when that like. falls apart that we have diseases. And so being able to mm -hmm. apply these methods then to disease models like you know, AD or autism or addiction um, is obviously hugely important. And I think that the sooner we can provide concrete answers on this, we can kind of break open new ways of looking at these diseases. Yeah, even within like a simple example, there's, you know, it's funny, again, I'll just, I, I picked it, so I'll just return to it. But, you know, the morning water drinking, you could do yep. morning versus evening water drinking. You could put like a flavorant in the water and see what that does. You could change the height of the, the you know, the, the nozzle where it drinks from. Um, I mean, you could do the temperature of the water and see, you know, how the experience changes. I mean, there's, there's so many things just within that that can be discovered. Uh, you know, if the mouse has another mouse in the cage versus not, uh, I mean, I mean, all kinds of things. It's amazing what the things you can get just from that one experience. You, you see, Richard, you, do you want to join the lab, man? I mean, you're, you're asking all the right <laughs> questions. I mean, clearly, this is this. You're, you're hitting the nail on the head. I mean, this is exactly why we have struggled and put in, you know, 80-hour weeks for two years to build this thing because that's wow. what we can do now. We can sit there and we can vary tiny aspects of these conditions like you're saying the you know the, the the positioning of the water bottle the social context the circadian timing and see how that impacts the the I'll call it like the dynamics of the dynamics right so um when we look at the neural dynamics for drinking it's not in this forced sort of artificial context but it's natural behavior that has variance and we can begin to try to understand that and then understand those manipulations you've mentioned introduce a known computation right so now if the water bottle is a centimeter higher we can say, okay, well, what's changed? Even though there's variance, what's changed in that distribution that must represent the computation of the water bottle being higher? And then what's stable? So what is it that's actually representing the water bottle? How does the animal still know that's a water bottle, even though the dynamics are shifting? One thing I would, I don't know, I mean, this is a huge change, but like you said, it doesn't seem to work when you're forcing a behavior. So maybe don't bother. You know, maybe, maybe not, don't be afraid of examining, again, water drinking. And yep. natural behavior, it's not forced, it's not constrained. That's probably going to give you a better answer anyway. You may be wasting your time forcing the mice to look left and look right. And that may speed your research tremendously by saying, we're just going to look at natural behaviors. Yes, we can't control everything, but we probably should see enough of a signal to tell us that it's okay. We still can figure things out. From well, yeah, so this is, a, this is like a deeply philosophical argument. So um, there's a, an awesome neuroscientist at UCSF named Lauren Frank, and he and I we're talking about kind of taking totally opposite approaches to this that, you know, if I oversimplify a lot here, one is kind of the, the controlled approach where you know what the computation is and you know what the task is. And so it's, you can simplify it and then look for that trace versus the approach that I'm taking, which is let's look, let natural behavior be its own control. Cause there's, there's such a large distribution that we can control for morning by looking at the same behavior in the evening. We can control for, um, you know, the impact of, of other animals by comparing it to when the animal performs the behavior alone, right? So we have the entire natural distribution and we can sort of break that up to, to service its own control. And so I think these are both very, very valuable approaches. And I think that they'll give us complementary but very different answers um, when we try to ask how does uh, the brain produce behavior and how does the brain produce reliable behavior? And so that I'll just mention that we have one last, um, you know, major tool in this, which is that we want to use um, sort of emerging genetic tools. I mean, I'm sure you guys have heard. I know, I know your podcast has covered things like CRISPR-Cas9, but 
we can go in and begin to manipulate um, we can go in and begin to actually manipulate some of the mechanisms that are believed to underlie learning and believed to underlie stability at a cellular level. So then we can try to say, okay, we understand this cellular mechanism that we think has to do with stability or has to do with learning. If we if we spread that, if we spread them, if we mutate that across the entire cortex, how does that actually affect behavior? And how and and what's the connection then between the cellular mutation and behavior? And that, and that, and that connection, that middle piece that's always missing, is this neural dynamics. Right. And so we can manipulate the cell, measure the dynamics, and observe behavior. So we can sort of try to make a direct connection between those three things. I think you're in a unique position, and I don't think you should do stuff like that. I mean, I'm giving you advice, whatever. You know, yeah, yeah, no, but, but every, everyone's trying to be a reductionist. Everyone's trying to knock out this one gene or this one protein, and everyone's trying to force behavior. And mm-hmm. then they're going to have to go back to the natural system anyway. You guys have built a really cool system where you can observe continuously what's going on with the brain, you know, the rodent. So why go back to these, you know, that's years and years of, oh, let's try this. Let's try that. Let's try. Why not let the natural environment inform you and guide your path that way? It just seems like you're in a unique position to do that. So I, I, I would consider it very strongly. I don't know if other people won't respect you if you do it that way, but I think that's like a, a far superior path to go because everyone's going this other direction and taking thousands of years to figure out stuff, you know, one by one by one, like, like Edison with the light bulb, you know, trying different filaments. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, that's, that's, that's a very, I mean, you kind of packed a lot in there um, that sort of stir me at a personal philosophical level and also kind of at a practical level. So personally and philosophically, like I'd like to believe that, um, you know, I can, I can guide my science and my lab can select questions and ideas without worrying about kind of the, trends. And so as much as science is objective and sort of driven by the data, there's still definitely clicks and there's trends and there's, um, you know, there's, the, the, you know, there's the influence of, of, of our own little kind of social world. Uh, and, and I would like to pick things independently of that. But even if I divorce myself from that aspect of things, there is certainly a huge and long literature that is reductionist. And so without trying to buy into that necessarily, we can test those claims in an ethologically relevant context, right? So we can say, does this reductionist mechanism truly predict um, whether or not an animal is able to, to learn complex behavior in a natural situation? And so then either the yes or the no is relevant, right? We're not necessarily, we're not necessarily buying into the, to the idea as much as we are trying to test it in an unbiased fashion. Well, you can also look at it this way. You, you can end up, you know, you have like the next, I'm just going to pick the next five years to spend, right? Yeah. So you could either be the lab that has gone to one tiny corner of this and studied, you know, this knockout and that's knockout. And, you know, you could, you can do that. Or you could create the overall picture with your observational method and then let other people do these highly specific experiments to try to fill in the jigsaw. Like you could either do the frame of the puzzle and be known for that, or you could do like one little corner, a few pieces of it. So I guess that's like a big decision for you on, you know, which one do you want to be? It would probably be hard to do both, but you know. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, I, I think um, this is actually maybe the most interesting piece of, of this conversation to me, uh, because starting up a lab at an R1 university and deciding the questions to ask and how to invest your resources is um, it's terrifying. It's like standing in front of a tidal wave and, um, you know, betting on, on which way to run. Uh, so I guess the, the, I mean, obviously 
as you frame as you as you put it i'd rather be the frame of frame of the puzzle that other people fill in later or or later on i can contribute to filling in but the i think i think there's still room for both of these in how i want to proceed in as much as there are very very specific cellular mechanisms that have decades decades worth of theoretical prediction behind them that remain completely untested and the prediction of all of these things is that they should stabilize these network dynamics that underlie robust computation. And so if I if I pick those mutations very, very carefully, just one or two of them, that can bring me all the way back to the, you know, Heb, Donald Hebb himself, the guy who proposed fire together, wire together, they can sort of bring me back to that. And I can connect those dots in the context of our sort of I don't know. I don't want to say the word revolutionary because it's not. I mean, it's not revolutionary, right? It's a step. It's a step in a direction. But our our you know powerful system that we've built here, um, without that being the you know the nucleus of what my lab does, um, I think it could. It would certainly demonstrate the potential of this method to address longstanding theoretical questions about you know reductionist mechanisms and explanations. Mm. But starting yeah, a lab, well, as you point out, like it's it's a hard thing, man, right? Like I, I have to basically try to convince young scientists to come join my lab as opposed to an established famous lab that's safer. And then I need to, to teach them how to do things when the lab isn't even here yet, right? So I've got to say, okay, well, first we need to build this thing, then I'll teach you to use it, and then we can run experiments with it. And so, so you know, the, the people who've joined the lab are, are they're seriously adventurous. They're risk takers and... Um, so far, it's working, but it's it's scary. I don't sleep very well anymore. Uh, well, you know what's good? Even if you do nothing else, the system you've created to observe neurons over time, that's so useful for so many scientists. So at least you take comfort in that. That's like incredibly useful. And un, untold amounts of people could use something like that. So, you know, you've already achieved something great. I'm not just blowing smoke. I'm serious. So maybe that yeah, takes I mean, a little bit of the pressure off. Or, okay. So, I mean, given, given that this is like a, a, a technology podcast, like another point to um, to bring up about what we've created is that the the technologies that people use to record from individual neurons, so these are electrodes, right? So we're trying to pick up like voltage traces. Um, I mean, how, how much depth do you want me to go into in explaining this? Like, I don't know. I don't know how much simplification yeah, you want. Let's go in and I'll, I'll ask you for clarification. No problem. Go okay, ahead. cool. And then And then you'll edit out like just the junk, right? Well, I, I really don't think a lot of it's junk. Um, wh what I've noticed is we go deep and then shallow and deep and then shallow. That's what I noticed with uh, with a lot of the interviews. So, you know, okay. I'll, believe me, I'll let you know. If it's not making sense, I'll, I'll ask you for clarification. So don't worry. Just, you know, go at like a medium level and then we'll figure it out from there. Okay. And then I, I also, before we hang up, I do want to make like a science disclaimer in case like my colleagues listen to this. Um, but sure. Okay. So so the, the the technology that we have picked and rely on is it's very, very... Uh, simple in in its pure essence. And so the idea is that if you put a very small conductive electrode next to a neuron, you can pick up the voltage trace when the neuron fires an action potential because a bunch of ions flow across the neuron's membrane into the neuron, it depolarizes the neuron, and the neuron spikes, and you have you know positive ions and negative ions moving in and out of the cell. So you can pick up those voltage changes on a little tiny electrical wire. Yes, it's a total pain in the ass, and it's difficult to implant it correctly and build the electrode correctly, and um, you know have the animal be healthy and not in pain, and that's all difficult. But the but the premise is simple, and so we have, as a field, begun to understand that we need to expand from recording from say eight electrodes or sixteen electrodes to 
Many, many, many. We, we'd love to be able to assay thousands. I mean, think about the human brain. It's 86 billion neurons. So when you have oh. 16 electrodes in there, it's a severe subsampling problem. Right. Um, so there are a few ways that people do this. The, the simple way is to just stick in single wires. The gold standard is to basically twist four wires together and melt their insulation don't bridge them, but melt them so that these four wires operate like hanging four microphones down into a, a, a football stadium. And what you can do then is you can kind of triangulate. So say you have a few people talking. These, these are the sort of uh, neurons in our analogy. Um, you have a few people talking, and it's hard to discriminate who's saying which words because their voices are similar. When you have four microphones, you'll have differential volume on them. So you can use the kind of triangulation across those wires to pick up who's saying what, and then you can specifically identify, oh, that person said this sentence and that person said that sentence. So this is kind of the gold standard. It's called a tetrode. And then finally, companies with big nanofab facilities can make silicon arrays. And these are expensive and they're hard to get and there's a limited supply chain, but it's easy. You just order it online. And it's not a very democratic way to do this, in my view, because small labs at small universities aren't going to be able to afford to implant $8,000 worth of electrodes in every experiment. So the problem is nobody yet has been able to get hundreds of channels into a mouse without buying these really expensive electrodes. So my lab has developed two different ways that we can implant up to 640 channels into a mouse, and we can do it for about $30. And oh, wow. so that, right. So, I mean, that, 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 the, the consumables on it are around $30. Uh, let's see, five, 640 channels, sorry, 640 channels would be about $70. Um, and that, to me, is a form of progress that's not specifically data-driven, but I think that when we sort of distribute this idea, and obviously I, I really like this idea of open science. Uh, I work, I'm, I'm part of the Allen Institute's uh, Scientific Advisory Council, and so I, I really appreciate free distribution of, of science and ideas. And so with that, we, we, we will be putting this out in the next year. Um, it's simple. People can make it. People can build it. We can, we'll, we'll you know, provide all of the files that people need to do the 3D printing, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that then opens the doors on a lot of different labs and a lot of people using these techniques to record from a thousand neurons in a freely behaving animal. And then it's not just one or two rich labs that are capable of doing this, but it's hundreds of labs potentially. Um, yeah. <laughs> or, or people just don't notice it at all and I don't get cited. So that's the... That's the other possibility. Well, again, what you've, what you've accomplished is excellent. It's a great tool that can be used by many other uh, scientists and many other labs. I hope so. I, hope, I, I, really, yeah. I really do hope it is um, because I, obviously I we, we can't answer all. Yeah. Back, back to the mouse that you've been observing for the, the 10 months. Are you filming it as well? Are you getting video footage of the entire time of everything it does? Yeah, yeah. So we um, have special cameras that are synchronized with the neural data, right? So the, the alignment between the video footage and the um, spiking of neurons is accurate to the, you know, some, some number of nanoseconds. Um, and then we use a, uh, an AI-based approach uh, called Deep Lab Cut that was published a year or two ago now, and it's fantastic. So we can, we can train, we can train the, 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 um, the code, the model on our animals, you know, you click a few points on a few frames. So well, that's what the nose looks like. And these are the ears. And you do that on, on a variety of frames from a variety of angles, the model gets trained. And then the model can run uh, effectively in real time so that as the animals are moving through the cage, we get a readout of where 11, I think we're, 
think we're looking at 11, maybe 15 points on the animal's body plus objects in the cage. And because obviously we're never going to be able to manually score a year's worth of video. I mean, that would be insane, right? But using this, but, you can go but, in. But you that? can score, but you can, again, if you're just looking at one event, for instance, like, you know, the morning water drinking event, then you can manually, you could have AI do it, but then you can also manually do that too. And I bet you you'll see stuff that the AI right. will never see. Well, what 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 the what the sort of AI thing lets us do though is just n know automatically we can have it just quickly detect any time the animal is near that water bottle, um, or we right. can have it detect sequences of poses that that you know estimate a, a simple behavior, and then we can go extract that video, look at it more closely, have a human look at it, and we can extract the neural data that correspond, and so that allows us hmm. to then pull out these thousands and thousands of examples of specific behaviors. Um, that, that otherwise would be inaccessible just because the data sets are so large. Um, and we, we've had to do this in, 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 in each phase of, of, uh, of the analysis. We've had to turn to machine, machine learning tools and um, artificial intelligence because the data sets are too large to approach manually. Um, and so this, again, has taken us a lot of time. Um, but we're up and running now. It's working, and um, we're trying to, trying to put it to good use. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Well, very good. Um, I think we can end here. This has been a, a great call, and uh, I think you're doing some great work. There's so many ways well, it can go. I know it's overwhelming, but, uh, you know, it's been good. Any any last topics that you want to get into in brief, or you think that's a good coverage right now? Wait, wait, sorry. What was the last piece of that? Oh, any, any last topics that you want to cover that I missed, or um, you feel like this is enough for now? Oh, man. I mean, uh, I mean, I think we've covered a lot of ground, and I hope that you're able to you know, trim this into a, a cohesive 30 minutes. So I guess the the only thing I'd, I'd leave with is, or maybe I'll pose this as a question to you first, but um, there's a there's a serious uh, chasm between the way that I communicate with the scientific community and then with, um, you know, effectively science outreach. So, you know, boiling stuff down into a sort of layman accessible um, package for the public. And so the it's 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 intimidating to, take scientific ideas that I usually only consider kind of in this professional arena and then try to make them more conversational, conversational and accessible. Um, right. So how, how do people, and obviously you don't need to include this, but I'm just curious, like how do people uh, address that or how do your, how do your guests, do they just wing it or um, do people ever? Let, kind me, of uh, let me, let me thank you for coming and then I'll, You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. 
Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Thank you.